I forget what I'm supposed to, what do I normally say? <laughs> um, uh, hi everybody, I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marble Reread Club. Close enough, anyway. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> All right. So let's see what's been going on. Your birthday was yesterday. I had an excellent birthday up here in Emerson, Illinois, Chicago's hat. And <laughs> the only comic I got for my birthday was I got the first volume of Patrick the Magician reprints. So I'm looking forward to reading that. Yes, things are going well here. How are things going there? Uh, it's been, once again, it's still been a little busy around here. We are, as you well know, getting ready to drive up to your neck of the woods tomorrow morning, actually. My wife has a conference. My daughter and I will be heading up as well and hanging out with Matt. My daughter is then going down to uh, Indiana to uh, do this theater competition festival thing. Then I, meanwhile, am flying down separately from the rest of the family to Charlotte, North Carolina, in order to do Heroes Con, which, if our schedule remains as it usually is, will have just ended yesterday by the time this uh, episode comes out. So I'm glad to all of you who came out to see me. (laughs) Yes, thank you everyone who came out. Let's discuss in our next episode, or two episodes from now, how that went, and you can tell us all about it. But what I regretted we didn't do in the last two episodes was just talk about, give a little exit interview to the Human Torch and Giant Man and just say, well, what was that all about? <laughs> What's, how do you feel in the end about the Human Torch and later Human Torch and thing run in Strange Tales? You're asking me? I'm asking you. Okay. Um, I guess I'm the only other one here. I just didn't know if that was rhetorical. The... Human Torch feature and, you know, later Human Torch and Thing feature was rarely worth the paper it was printed on. From time to time, you would have some competent issues that were more or less enjoyable, but no one just seemed to be putting their all into that one. It was just, hey, Fantastic Four is popular. Let's have a spinoff with the teenage character. And I think it was more a case of they knew that the Human Torch originally was conceived as a character who could sustain his own book. So they're like, well, we've got this character who we know, unlike all these other Marvel characters who we don't know about yet, we know this guy can sustain his own book. So it'd be silly not to give him one. And I think that was always sort of the reasoning behind him having his own book. And what they discovered is, no, he really can't sustain his own book. Uh, <laughs> at least this teenage version cannot. And they just, they're, you know, they just made so many wrong turns and having him have this secret identity in the original Kirby issues. Now, obviously, the original Kirby issues are in many ways the best issues of the series because they were drawn by Jack Kirby and they had Kirby imagination and they had a lot of good Kirby qualities, but they were also the most inane issues given that he had this secret identity and they had to get rid of that. And eventually adding the thing, you know, getting rid of that was a good thing story-wise and adding the thing was a good thing story-wise, but they just couldn't save the feature. Art quality kept going down and the writing quality kept going down as they brought in guest writers. And it was just a very problematic feature. And then the thing that the Human Torch feature added to the Marvel Universe was the Wizard and Pace by Pete. Yeah, true. And Plant Man. But more <laughs> so importantly, the Wizard and Pace by Pete have become, once the Pace by Pete becomes Trapster, as we'll talk about today, they became lasting additions. But is there anything else in the end that when we talk about the history of Marvel Comics, is there any other reason to talk about the Human Torch story other than the Wizard and Pace by Pete? I I think it's where they really developed and cemented the kind of big brother, younger brother relationship between Johnny and Ben 
uh, which you know has remained for decades. Yeah. So I, you know, I think that that yeah, they'd already had the ingredients of that, but I think that they uh, really started to lean into it with that. I think that's the main thing, other than you know this one decent villain and this other villain who is decent when he you can get a laugh out of him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and. And Plant Man. One of the most amazing things about the Human Torch, right, is that we have now had an additional 60 years of Marvel Comics, and I believe I have not kept track of Marvel Comics pretty closely in the last five years, but I believe that he's never had his own series again, that so many Marvel heroes have had their own series, including, of course, The Thing has had his own series many times. But I think that, you know, the Human Torch has occasionally been in team-ups. Originally, Marvel team-up looked like it was uh, supposed to trade off between Spider-Man and Human Torch being the anchor, the two anchors in that that would trade off. Uh, but, you know, Human Torch uh, fell away pretty quickly. Yeah. As for Giant-Man and Wasp or Ant-Man and Wasp or Ant-Man or whatever you want to say, it had its ups and downs. We had the deliriously goofy stuff in the, the initial run, some of the Hank and Jan screwball comedy romantic stuff that they had could be good from time to time. But really, it was just limping to its end. As with Human Torch... The best issues were the first issues that were done by Kirby because they had Kirby art and Kirby imagination, and they never again matched Kirby's art or Kirby's imagination. But once again, you also had a lot of Kirby inanity that, you know, was unsustainable. And in some ways, the book got better. Adding the Wasp, I think Wasp is one of my favorite characters. So unlike Human Torch, you know, Human Torch, the best thing to come out of it was Wizard and Pace by Feet. You know, this book, the best thing to come out of it is the Wasp, which is one of Marvel's yes. best characters. So yes. this book made a much greater contribution to the Marvel Universe than the Human Torch book did. Yes. But the writing got worse and worse as guest writers came in. The art got worse and worse as various grade Z level artists were assigned to the book. And <laughs> the just terrible stories and just terrible sexism, just terrible modeling role models for kids in terms of how to have a relationship between a man and a woman. You can go back and forth as to whether or not comics have the responsibility to provide good role models. But eventually they decided this relationship between Hank and Jan is unsustainable and should become a different sort of lesson for kids, a how not to lesson. <laughs> and that begins here. Like <laughs> this relationship was a terrible relationship from the start. Eventually Jim Shooter decided to make that canon, but here it is not canon, but who boy is it already on its way there. And people who grew up with these characters, people who were actually collecting these giant man stories back when they were kids, generally tend to feel absolutely betrayed by Jim Shooter's developments of uh, of what what came eventually. As for you and me, that was really our introduction to Marvel Comics. And I think I may have talked before about how, you know, it really seemed quite sophisticated about, you know, you can be a hero and still do bad things. You can be a strong woman and not be able to get out of a bad relationship. You know, you can't eventually get out of the bad relationship, although it might not be easy. Uh, you know, all, all this sort of stuff that, you know, when I was what, eight years old or whatever, I think really made a real impression on me. But yeah, I can definitely see that if you grew up with these characters as we've seen them here, that that would have just been a gross betrayal when that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So Exit Interview, Human Torch, Giant Man, certainly both desperately needed to end when they ended. We are not shedding a tear for these books. I don't think anybody is shedding a tear for these books. They had been saddled with grade C writing and grade C art for at least the last year. And, um, well, it is well past time to bury them. 
but they both had certain contributions to the Marvel Universe uh, that is worth remembering the series for, especially the character of the Wasp. Absolutely. So, okay. uh, let's move on to uh, the task at hand. We are discussing the books of August 1965. We are moving at a fast pace through 1965, which I am enjoying. It is an excellent year for Marvel Comics. So, Amazing Spider-Man number 27, Bring Back My Goblin to Me, which is a sort of nonsensical title that is, I think, a reference to the song My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean. I have no idea why they are doing that. We have on the cover a little preview of what happens in the inside, where Spider-Man has to beat people up with his shoulders. So we've got Spider-Man shouldering two people in the face and uh, getting knocked aside while uh, both the Green Goblin and Crime Master pointed him. So the issue begins. We pick up where the cliffhanger left off with Green Goblin dropping off Spider-Man in front of Crime Master and a warehouse full of goons. It says, edited and written by Smiling Stanley, plotted and drawn by Scowlin Steve Dicko, lettered and gift-wrapped by Swingin' Artie Simak. Stanley then says, if you dig an action-packed, old-fashioned Cops and Robbers mystery yarn, this one is for you. But even if you don't like this kind of story, read it anyway. It may just change your mind. So he's really not complaining about Dicko's writing here and is giving Dicko full writing credit to his but, credit. But I, I do wonder whether the scowling Steve Ditko might have been, uh, you know, <laughs> that Steve may have been getting a little bit more vocal about like, hey, I'm not being treated well around here. <laughs> Can you say that he gave someone else credit to his credit, or is that a self-contradiction? Is that self-contradictory to say that it's literally not to your credit if you give someone else credit? So the goons try to take off Spider-Man's mask, but it has been webbed on because it is a cheap costume store costume that he has bought and has had to web it on to keep it from writing up. Green Goblin and Crime Master have a big debate over who should take over the docks. The bad guys chain up Spider-Man in some very extremely confining looking chains. But then Spider-Man wakes up, and as we see on the cover, he starts shouldering people. All he can do is just move his shoulders back and forth now that he is so chained up. But Spider-Man is such a badass, he can beat people up that way. Then the cops come in. Spider-Man finally flexes his chest so much he breaks the chains, which is sort of more of a Superman thing. But Yes, uh, that, that is, is very reminiscent of a couple of famous Superman uh, images, especially the fact that the chains are shattering rather than just the weakest link breaking. I think there's another cartoon somebody has made making fun of the fact that whenever Superman does this, it looks like they shatter rather than just one link breaking. And also, I noticed it, it strikes me as odd that the cops come in and are just fist fighting. Do you have guns? Or, or even batons, you know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, you know, and I don't know whether this is just a, hey, you know, Comic Code Authority, we need to make sure we look, make the police look heroic. Characters don't generally tend to use guns in these things because that can just get too bloody or violent or whatever. But it does still seem really odd that this interracial group of buddy cops come in and <laughs> three of them and a chained up Spider-Man take on basically the entire underworld. <laughs> Just like uh, this. And shoulders. Yes, and shoulders. Just Spider-Man shoulders. So then Spider-Man is jumping around. This is a beautiful fight sequence. Could not be more complex choreography with Green Goblin versus Crime Master, Spider-Man versus all these goons, and they all keep mixing and matching and getting in each other's way. Cops in there as well. Spider-Man sets up his camera, as always, thinking about commercial concerns and taking <laughs> what are presumably the world's crappiest photographs that are all taken from a static position on a timed timer. Goes ahead, gets his bite, his costume starts running up again because it's a cheap costume. And finally, Crime Master gets away. Spider-Man decides he can either follow the Crime Master or Green Goblin decides to follow Crime Master. Gorgeous shots of, of course, it's Dicko, so where does it all go? 
It goes in. It goes into the water under the docks. And then to. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember where it goes to next. The sewers! The sewers, of course. I should have been able to guess that, <laughs> even though I'd forgotten what actually comes next. Yes, the sewers. Yes, so there's a really gorgeous sequence of going on on the water under the docks, and then, of course, they go in the sewers. Uh, Spider-Man gasses, Crime Master gasses Spider-Man and gets away. So then Spider-Man finally just decides, I'm going to go to J.J. Jameson and just tell him that your employee, Frederick Foswell, is Crime Master. Well, then Foswell comes in, and it's like, uh, no, I'm not. And then suddenly, this whole thing is very, you know, I'm a big fan of Dicko's plotting on these issues, but this is awkward plotting, where then it turns out that the crime master is across on the next building over, across the street from them, and is trying to shoot them from the building, so obviously Foswell is not the crime master, but then the cops show up on that rooftop to arrest the crime master, and Foswell's like, yes, I told them who the crime master is, I, you know, have contacts from back in the day. It then turns out, and this is something that we know Dicko liked to do, it turns out to be someone we've never heard of, who is the villain. He always likes to do that. He explains well, it was... Well, and, and you know, I before I went back and started re- reading these things, it was always my impression that this whole, like, you know, oh, uh, it was somebody unimportant that you don't know was Ditko's plan for Green Goblin. But then when I went back and reread the uh, read these things for the first time, I realized, no, somebody, it, when telling me this stuff, had gotten this incident mashed up with the Green Goblin. Turns out to be someone named Nick Lucky Lewis. It's interesting, we never see his face, so we see a photograph of him, but we don't see his actual face when he eventually dies fighting the cops, which, again, seems like sort of a Ditko philosophical thing to not show his face. Spider-Man never figures any of this out. Spider-Man is completely behind the ball here. He fails to figure out who the Crime Master is, falsely accuses Frederick Coswell, looks like he has egg on his face, and then he also, jumping ahead a little bit here, he fails to figure out that Coswell is, because remember, Spider-Man had already found Coswell's secret compartment where he keeps his costume, but he never figures out what we find out at the end of the issue that Coswell does have a secret identity. He is the underworld informant known as Patch, who was at the meeting and turned everybody in. So Spider-Man doesn't find out who Green Goblin is, doesn't find out who Crime Master is, doesn't find out the secret identity of Frederick Boswell. He is not the world's best crime solver, but nevertheless, they will have storyline after storyline throughout the years of Spider-Man, of of Spider-Man having masked villains with secret identities that will have massive multi-issue epics dealing with who the person is. And Spider-Man, clearly the worst possible equipped person to deal with all of these storylines because he is not good at figuring these things out. So then, meanwhile, jumping back, Spider-Man decides, remembers to go get his camera, finds the camera is gone, trips on a running plank, falls in the river, and then a bunch of boys, one of whom is black. Actually, one thing I just noticed this time as we're, as we're looking at it, these kids look like the young versions of the three cops we saw. There was, a <laughs> really there was a red-headed cop, one uh, one black cop, and, you know, one uh, sandy brown-haired cop. <laughs> it's That's like, very true. Are these their kids? <laughs> right, okay. And, and so they, they throw the, the camera back to him uh, when it's like, you know, shouldn't he swim to shore so that way it won't fall into the water? But the other thing I was thinking is, so now these kids know that Spider-Man had this camera there. And when those photos show up in the paper... <laughs> You know, aren't they going to be like, hey, wait, these photos came from some guy named Peter Parker, <laughs> which I mean, I know they're kids, but still. Yes, not not big newspaper readers. So Spider-Man does his photographs. It's like, why am I always selling photographs to J. George Jameson? Why can't I go sell the photographs to another newspaper editor, Barney Bushkin over at the Daily Globe? 
And so, and who will become a recurring character in Spider-Man over the years, this alternate editor who Peter Parker will go to work for at various times. But the big problem with this guy is he's a lot nicer than Jonah, but he's also more pushy than Jonah. So he's like, you can't kill Bernie Bushkin, fella. How'd you do it? You know, you know, someone in the rackets got a friend on the forts. Oh, come on, baby. Don't hold out on old bushy. You can tell me I won't breathe the soul. Of course I want him, but tell me more about yourself. What kind of camera do you use? Where do you get your experience? And he thinks, I'll write you a letter. Woo, what a nosy guy. I'll take Jonah anytime. So we have a bit of an explanation of why he continues to be in business with J. Jonah Jameson, who respects his secrets. We cut back to the club, where I, I suppose there are enough black people in this comic now that we can stop pointing them out all the time. But it is yes. even more clear than last issue that one of the members of J. Jonah Jameson's Gentlemen's Club is black. And, 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 and let's just point out that, like, you know, the Masters Club still hadn't let any black people in when Tiger Woods was starting to play there. Right? Yes. <laughs> so that that's why I find that one particularly remarkable. It is fascinating. Yes. So then Spider-Man apparently did sell the photos to Marty Pushkin because then it's interesting. Tisha Jameson sees them in the Daily Globe and says, I'd give my eye teeth. I'd give my eye teeth for these pigs. I'll be hanged if they don't look like Peter Parker's work. I hope he's not quitting me. So you would think that there would just be a photo credit on these photos. Yes. And uh, you would not have to guess that they were Peter Parker's work. But I guess these are being published without photo credit. Um, I don't know if that was common at the time or not. Spider-Man finally decides to sew himself a new costume and to take Aunt May out to the movies because Anna Watson is not free to hang out with her. And they have a fun old time out of the movies. We see that Frederick Croswell is Patch. We see that the Green Goblin is still keeping his identity secret. And we see Peter Parker and Aunt May out on their date. And that is the end of the issue. This is, I think, an excellent issue. It is a little awkward to have the finale happen on the next roof over without Spider-Man either figuring out what's going on or even really being there for the finale, just sort of watching it from afar. But I can't complain because it's not like I can complain there's not enough action in this issue because <laughs> the first 10 pages are so jam-packed with action that it is hard to complain about them. The rest of it sort of takes place from afar, but I cannot complain. What did you think of this issue? Uh, I thought it was great. It really just feels like Ditko is having just more fun doing the doing the art at this point. I mean, this is really, you know, as I think I've said before, like this, we have entered the phase of peak Ditko art. And I love some of the facial expressions for what Ernie Bushkin, was that his name? And yeah, for great. and for Pete as he's starting to sew his costume. And there are another of another few uh like close-ups that have a lot of character and and feeling to them uh and you know everything else you've already pointed out all of the uh the action and the way that the uh you know once again the way that ditko has the characters interact with their immediate environment as though it's a a set have props or whatever that uh it just really feels like it's has real weight and reality uh, one thing I will point out is that when Spider-Man's, you know, bargain basement costume is uh, shrinking after he gets out of the water and he pulls it off, just it's seemingly on some random rooftop where he's just like, oh, this thing's shrinking quickly. I don't know if I'll be able to get it off. It's squeezing me. And he takes the whole thing off angrily. And next thing we see, he's back in his street clothes. You know, so I'm like, did you Presumably, just have- Presumably this is the roof where he left his street clothes. Uh, but, so presumably. It's rooftop, but but my, my point is that- uh, People, you know, kids usually aren't going to, you know, think, hey, that doesn't make any sense. And uh, this really is such a better solution than Joe Orlando's little oh, yeah. little hood pocket cape thing. <laughs> you know? 
just uh, just let it go. It's it's uh you know what is it that uh Grant Morrison once said where people were like, hey, how does how did you know the Batmobile's tires stay pumped up? And he's like, it's a comic book. <laughs> Nobody pumps the tire. Anyway, yeah, I I enjoyed it. You mentioned the panel of. Peter Parker is sewing his own costume. That's my least favorite panel in the issue, though. Last yeah. panel on page 18, where he's okay. threading a needle, feels a bit like 80 sticko to me. It's uh, it's a little too broad. My favorite panels would be, of course, the sewer panels. I I pick oh, up yeah. sewers, and I love to go up in sewers. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, everything on the docks, around the water, in the sewers, those weird little foot planks below yes, the docks. Yes, those are fascinating. Um, yeah. which, uh, is that a real thing? I have no idea. I assume so. All right, so Daredevil number nine. Notice that this one actually says Pop Art Productions under the corner box. I believe this is the first time we've seen that show up, yes? It is, yes, and will be true for the rest of the books this month. They say Marvel, Pop Art, 12 Cents Productions. We've talked about this in the past, but now that we're actually here, this seems to be, I read this as Marvel saying like, well, you like Pop Art? You like these Roy Lichtenstein paintings of comic book panels? Well, this is the original Pop Art. We'll show them to you before Roy Lichtenstein, Roy Lichtenstein gets to them. So uh, <laughs> this seems like the beginning of Stan trying to market his comics towards intellectuals, trying to market his comics towards college students specifically, trying to go like, look, we know what we're doing a little bit. Roy Lichtenstein isn't just making fun of us. We actually realize we're creating the value that he sees in this art. And you can see it too. You know, you can actually, if you like pop art, you will enjoy these comics. Yeah. And when I was in, uh, you know, middle school or maybe early high school and, you know, still liking comics, but kind of wanting to be a little bit more sophisticated or come across as more sophisticated while liking comics. I had seen these old things saying pop art back, you know, on old reprints and stuff like that. And uh, I remember there was some kind of paper that I wrote about like censorship or something like that. And I was talking about comics and I ended up using the term pop art to refer to it once again, to try to make it sound a little bit more sophisticated. And, you know, the the teacher was like, I don't think that's what pop art means. (laughs) But anyway, this really should be a fantastic issue because we've got Wally Wood and castles in Europe, chainmail and swords and all sorts of stuff like that. The cover is really quite nice, especially the uh, headshot of Daredevil himself. Unfortunately, I was quite disappointed in what we got here. There are a couple of reasons, I'm sure. One is, as the credits say, fundamental plot and script by Smile and Stan Lee basic layouts and delineation by wondrous Wally Wood. So basically breakdowns and inks, but then comprehensive penciled graphics by Bounty Bob Powell, and then balloons, orders, and blurbs swinging Sammy Rosen. So uh, Wally Wood just broke down the story beats basically in art, you know, kind of did sort of like stick figures or, you know, just volume drawings or something like that, showing what happens, then passed it off to Bobby, to Bob Powell, who can sometimes be okay and sometimes not. And he's sort of a C-list guy. And then Wallywood went back and inked it. Well, I have often found that when you have things passed off from a layout artist to a finished penciler, uh, things often seem to get lost in translation. And yes, Wally Wood was coming back and inking it, so theoretically he could have gone back and fixed any of this stuff, but I don't think he cared much anymore about what he's doing here. I mean, I think the whole reason why he passed this off to Bob Powell is he, once again, was just feeling like, man, this is a ripoff. I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to start working my way out of here. Yeah, I completely disagree. Okay, okay. I read these credits and I said, I think 
this sounds awful. Bob Powell, who I'm not a big fan of, doing finished pencils and then wood inking. I said, you know, this is probably going to be a terrible issue. I never once, I cannot identify a single bit of Bob Powell in this issue. These, every page in this issue looks like it was penciled and inked by Wallace Wood to me. I'll point and some out to you. I love <laughs> Wally Wood doing castles. And I, this is one of my favorite issues of Daredevil. One of Wood's biggest problems is that his villains are inane. And this is yet another inane villain. But I love the setting and I love the art. I was really, I, I was really shocked that Wood bringing in another penciler didn't decrease the quality of the art in my eyes. And it, but it did not. But it did in my eyes. So I will, I okay. will point out where that is from time to time. And meanwhile, I know we keep on getting diverted, not going uh, swiftly through the issues here, but with us talking about the art and how the different contributions end up playing into this, uh, I figured we should mention that we got a lovely email from a fan in Perth, Australia. One of the things she was saying is that, you know, as a consumer of comics, but not an artist, she can't really see what we're talking about when we talk about the different art styles and art styles we like, art styles we don't like, how we can look at something and say, hey, this is by this artist, but it looks like that artist and all that sort of stuff. I can understand that, although, uh, you know, I always was more art focused and, uh, you know, very early on in my, uh, you know, youth, um, I had been able to start picking out what various pencilers and inkers looked like. So I started being able to... um, you know, figure out, okay, well, you know, the faces and the poses, I can definitely tell, you know, this is penciled by John Byrne or Walt Simonson or, uh, you know, uh, George Perez or whatever. And then, you know, oh, and I can tell by the brush strokes and the way that the blacks are placed and things like that, that it was Tom Palmer or Al Williamson or Bob McLeod or whatever else, uh, to name three of my favorites. I guess I would just say it's not dissimilar to the way you start to recognize uh, music artists. You know, it's like yeah. when you're first listening to the radio and it's just like you you hear a couple of different songs and even if they might have very different sounds, you know, one's an upbeat dance number or something like that and another's a ballad, you can start to be like, oh, I recognize this voice. I, I recognize this guitar style. Uh, you know, I recognize some of the production choices. And, you know, eventually you get to a point where you hear a new song by a band you know you will almost immediately know that that is that band, you know, and it's really very similar. It's just a visual version of that. So, you know, and the letter writer was going like, I can't really tell the difference. So if I look at a drawing of Thor, I can't tell if it's by Deco or Kirby. It just looks like a drawing of Thor. And let me say that that's a perfectly fine way to enjoy comics. Oh, yes. That it can add a lot to gain an appreciation of artists when reading comics, but it can also take away a lot. Like, I kind of wish that I could look at I mean, I certainly wish that I could read a Coletta inked issue of Thor and a Chickstone inked issue of Thor and enjoy them the same amount. I I wish that Coletta did not completely ruin Thor for me for five years or forever long he inked the book, but he does. And I have a podcast, so I'm going to talk about it. Yes, yes. Uh, but yes, thank you for uh, for that uh, lovely email. So let me go ahead and uh, get into the meat of things here. So we start off with Daredevil taking care of some villains who are 
in the river, like on a boat. He's coming down from a bridge, which seems really odd. But uh, he actually gets uh, grazed by a bullet in the shoulder or the upper arm. So that's going to be sort of a handicap for him throughout the rest of this issue. Then an old college roommate, a like foreign student that Matt and Foggy went to college with, is in town. And he was actually uh, the ruler of this tiny little uh, European country called Lichtenbad, which I guess is supposed to be like Liechtenstein, which is just like what, maybe you know, 50 square miles or something like that. So many Marvel characters went to college with future Eastern European dictators. Um, (laughs) Is this, is this a more common thing in the Marvel universe than it is in our universe? Like I, I had some, I had some morally sketchy roommates uh, back in the day, but nobody like Dr. Doom or this ruler of Lichtenbad. Well, I mean, my understanding is if, you know, you go to some of the more uh, posh universities and high profile universities, you'll get a number of people who will go on to, or, you know, the kids of brutal dictators in, you know, yes. uh, in other parts of the world. You know, it, it, I'm sure it happens. So he comes to meet them. This guy who uh, rules Lichtenbad. A, he's like seven feet tall. But he says uh, right when he meets Matt here, he says, Matthew, when this young lady told me you had lost your sight, I knew I had to take you back to Lichtenbad with me because he's now got that eye doctor uh, we will later find out kidnapped. Um, well, he, he had lost his sight before college. True. <laughs> I mean, small, small bit, but still, I figured I, I should just, point it I out. I just say how much text is in this issue? Or just If we give Wood credit for the plotting, he has just, he has come up with enough plot that Lee is having to just look at page three and the amount of text on page three, even panel four with one, two, three, four, oh, yeah. five uh, balloons in it. And then page four, again, a ton of text. Too much text in this issue. We've got great, what I think is great Hollywood art. Let it shine. Too much text. Yeah. Uh, and as Rob Salkowitz pointed out when we had him on, that really seems to be a real shame when you're talking about Wally Wood. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, Matt, can tell because of his superpowers that uh, this whole thing's a hoax of some sort about going back to Lichtenbad to get his eyes fixed. But he's like, oh, but I love a mystery, so I'll go off and do it. Okay, sure, fine. We have more uh, romantic love stinks kind of stuff between Karen and uh, Foggy as Matt takes off. So we see him landing in an airstrip right outside of what looks like a medieval walled city. Actually, what's the name of the guy again? I'm trying to remember. Anyway, the bad guy who rules this country. Klaus Kruger. Klaus Kruger. So <laughs> he is showing up with Matt on the plane, and then a uh, resistance fighter comes up with a gun trying to assassinate him in something that feels reminiscent of uh, Franz Ferdinand. Apparently, he always wears chainmail under his suit and then is able to karate chop uh, this guy, and then his guards beat him up and take him away for who knows what to happen. I think we can guess. Matt determines, okay, this is a slave state, but what's going on? Why am I being brought here? It turns out that this guy's whole thing is he is trying to kidnap or otherwise trick any uh, lots of the greatest scientists and thinkers and stuff like that in the world to come to Lichtenbad and then he can, you know, use their expertise and their knowledge to take over the world. Okay. Yes. Um, he's got an army of robot knights that he is deploying for a bunch of this stuff. That's how he can keep the entire population down because he has these robots that will not turn against him because he's terrible. 
Let me go ahead and say at the top of page seven, I love the third panel on page seven, where you have a collage of people. He, Matt hears people throughout the land saying, we must revolt, be brave, wait for the signal. It's death to divide the Duke. His spies are everywhere. I'm innocent. I swear it. And it's a nice collage. Yeah, and that 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 is a very Wally Wood looking thing. Yeah, it's quite good. So we see that uh, Daredevil is using his uh, radar sense to actually um, sense things through the st- multiple stone floors. Which that's you know, a gorgeous panel. I love that first panel on page nine where he is looking down through the floor using his radar sense. Yes, uh, and it, it is gorgeous. I just uh, it sort of strikes me as like really. I thought it was like echolocation, and so it just sort of bounces off stone and comes back to you. But sure, why not? Um, it doesn't have to work exactly like sonar. And this is one of the things that always gets me too when a character goes to a particular odd location. And then, and everybody knows that that character is there. And then their superhero alter ego shows up there as well. <laughs> it's like, yes. huh, that's interesting. And we're later going to have this happen with the Savage Land in several months as well with Daredevil. Uh, so it's like, yeah, uh, once again, nobody cares about their secret identities here except maybe uh, Peter Parker. There's uh, some great fight sequences yeah, as Daredevil tries to. Uh, take down Klaus Kruger. He is subdued and put in a dungeon along with a lot of the other, you know, luminaries that he has lured here or captured in one way or another. Page 11, panel one. This is one place where I really did not like the art. (laughs) There is either the guy's left arm should be further to our right, or his head and neck should be further to our left. But the way it looks right now, that arm is sticking like basically out of the middle of his collarbone uh, and, uh you know that's that's one of the places where it really felt to me like the miscommunication happened and it, it, i guess it's really just this panel that really jumped out to me and sort of poisoned the rest of it, which is unfair as it turns out the uh thing they chained daredevil up to was just a pole that was not uh, capped at the top, so he's just able to shimmy up the pole and jump off. Which is the, the sort of thing that usually annoys me in a comic, where it's like, couldn't you have figured out he could have gotten out of that? But no, what, what I think makes it look like, yeah, I would not have assumed he could have gotten out of that. Yeah. A nice sequence of him figuring out how to get out of it, making him look very impressive. Lovely panel, well, two panels of Daredevil messing up the electrical system with a, you know, spark explosion, and then all of the captured people running out of the dungeon. Some really nice looking stuff. I really like on page 13, where Daredevil is kicking his feet in front of his own speech balloon. It makes for a very dynamic panel where Daredevil is kicking people saying Geronimo and his feet are sticking out in front of his word balloon. Yes. Foggy is really showing some toxic characteristics in this issue. Bottom of page 13, he's so angry about Karen caring more for Matt than for him that he literally punches a mirror and breaks it. Uh, which, you know, really seems like one of those violent abuser type things, which, you know, I don't think that's what they're going for and not the way they're going to characterize him going forward. But <laughs> I did not like it. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, once again, yeah, a really nice panel on the bottom of page 14 of Daredevil swinging into action as there's a whole riot going on down below him. Although there is the yeah. question of what, his, what is his cane hanging on to as he swings? We've got him using his cane as a mortar launcher, which is, you know, uh, not 
wasn't in the thing two months ago and it was a rifle last time <laughs> it's like make up your minds people he's got a lot of stuff in that game he really really does okay so then daredevil is like okay you know fighting all of these robots and stuff like that isn't gonna get us anywhere i need to take out kruger himself uh we see that his moat actually has sharks in it I don't believe sharks are usually in moats. I think that sharks need salt water and most moats are fresh water. It's really usually crocodiles you're going to find in there. What you're proving here, Steve, is that you don't even have a moat, do you? You don't even, you you don't have a salt, fresh water moat. You don't have a salt water moat. You don't have any moat at all. I, I've got a dry moat. <laughs> no. no, you don't. I've got a dry moat like a peasant. Um, okay. So uh, anyway, he gets into uh, to fight Klaus. I really don't like the look, though, of Klaus Kruger's head sticking through his chainmail cowl. It just looks really, I don't know, it, I, I just don't like the look of it. It seems visually unappealing to me. It might be accurate, but yeah. Then the doctor, Dr. Van Eyck, goes ahead and takes down the power in the castle, which is nuclear, uh, even though it means him going into a room where uh, you would need a rad suit and he doesn't have one. And so it kills him almost intensely. So, uh, Sorry, almost immediately. So instantly. Um, I think it's the word you're looking for. Instantly. Yes, instantly. Thank you. So then we have one of those cheap things where the bad guy accidentally is thrown to his death off of a cliff. Daredevil didn't mean to murder him, but he just ends up dead. So we don't see how he gets back to the U.S., but we end on Foggy once again looking really malevolent and saying, how I hate myself for speaking about my partner and my best friend like that. And yet, if not for Matt, I'm sure Karen would be mine as he like you know looks with an intent core shadowed face right at the camera there are some good things and some bad things to be said about this issue and you know what you're, you're right about the art that, that a lot of it was a lot better than i was seeing i just i just don't like the look of klaus kruger is i think what it comes down to i have no problem with the look of klaus kruger i like mine but i think this is a shockingly good issue i think that once again they don't know what to do with daredevil daredevil has gone so far astray from that wonderful first Bill Everett issue where he was fighting mob fixers, which was his original origin. And whenever you have Daredevil in the Savage Land or Daredevil fighting robot knights in a European medieval kingdom, it always seems like they've lost the plot a little bit. <laughs> but I am more than happy to have Wallywood tackling knights and castles in Europe. I feel like it really missed a bullet in terms of Bob Powell not ruining the issue. And I am, generally speaking, a big fan of this issue. And yeah, I just had one more thing that I meant to mention here was uh, at one point when Matt changes into his Daredevil costume for the first time in Lichtenbad, he thinks to himself, I've never tackled a head of state before, but in this case, I'll make an exception. It's like, wouldn't Namor count as a head of state? Yes. <laughs> I want my 12 and, cents back. Well, well, and and he helped fight Doctor Doom just last month. <laughs> hey. Hey, <laughs> this is at least the third time that he has tackled the head of state. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was my only other note that I forgot about here. All right, yeah, what and, hell, I, Stanley and Wallywood, <laughs> and you know, um, that's just such an unforced error. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Anyway, yeah. Uh, let's let's see if uh, we we both went a little slow on those. Let's see if we can pick up the pace here with Ben. All right. Let us go ahead and discuss Fantastic Four number forty one, the brutal betrayal of Ben Grimm, possibly the most daringly dramatic development in the field of contemporary literature. Pick up where we left off last issue. 
once again, terrible inking by Vince Coletta. We have been stalking off, still pissed about having to become the thing again to defeat Dr. Doom. The rest of the Fantastic Four is trying to reassure him, but they can't. Everybody looks god-awful, like they were, <laughs> as if Vince Coletta was somehow inking the page with a Bowie knife and just scratching all the lines into the paper instead of actually having any sort of pen or brush. We then get two panels with just no background, which we know Kirby never does. So we know Claudia is erasing the background on page two. They try to stop and they can't. So my big problem with this issue is it's just very awkwardly plotted because the basic plot of the issue is fine. Ben leaves the Fantastic Four, gets kidnapped by the Frightful Four, and then brainwashed by them into attacking the Fantastic Four when the Fantastic Four come to rescue him. That is a perfectly fine plot. However, in order to make a bot, you have to get people from A to B. You have to get people around town based on where you want them to be. And the way Kirby or Lee chooses to do this is to have Ben just falls asleep in the back of a pickup truck and goes out of town and is so soundly asleep that then when he falls out of the back of the pickup truck in the middle of upstate New York, he doesn't wake up, which is like, um, I have never fallen out of the back of a pickup truck when I was asleep, but I think it would wake me up. Well, you're not the thing. That's awkward plotting number one. Awkward plotting number two is he just so happens to be next door to a house being rented by the Frightful Four. Yeah, who, that, who, that, that bugs me. <laughs> who, then, who then are like, hey, there's Ben Grimm. Uh, he's one of our arch villains. Let's go ahead and levitate him here into our house. We have the Fantastic Four. Oh, now they're there with Alicia. I wish that Ben could have gotten to go to Alicia when he didn't have his powers, but he didn't. They tell Alicia he's left, her and them, presumably. Sue, at one point, is saying, that's it, dear. You just have a good cry. I think the boys would like to shed a few tears also, if it weren't so unmanly. Yes. So then, <laughs> Ben Grimm is pulled into the Frightful Four's headquarters. They Now, I saw you put on the Comics Wives Facebook group this picture of Medusa that I agree is clearly based on an old painting of her with a bowl of fruit in front of her and... Yeah. stretched out on a divan. You didn't get a particular painting back from the group. But... No, no. I mean, pe- people had a lot of different things that were similar to this. I mean, you know, it's a very common sort of uh, general theme or layout for a painting. But yeah, we weren't able to identify anything. But also that elaborate mirror in the foreground looks like yes. it would be something from a specific thing. So the Frightful Four are feuding with each other, which is fun. Kirby and Lee have some fun with that. And the Fantastic Four, I guess because Dr. Doom wrecked all their stuff, so they all have to squeeze into one of Johnny's two-seater hot rods. It does not look very comfortable. <laughs> I, I guess given Reed's ability to uh, squish himself, you would think he would, especially given that there is a lady in the car, be willing to squish himself down to a inch thick in order to make this happen, but he doesn't. <laughs> so then they somehow have figured out, well, Ben probably fell asleep in the back of a pickup truck and he probably <laughs> fell out somewhere around here and he's probably now being held in one of these houses. How they figured out any of this, I don't know. It's very poorly plotted. Elementary, uh, my dear Watson. The Frightful Four are fighting against each other. The Fantastic Four just happened to find the right house and knock on the front door, awkward plotting, and get into a big fight with the Frightful Four. They are all wailing on each other. Ben Grimm, the thing shows up and they expect him to rescue them, but instead he attacks him. He has been brainwashed. They grab the Fantastic Four, they put Sue in a bag, they put a big dowsing machinery on Johnny, they stick Reed to a big paste-covered board, they think about killing Ben, they decide against it, he wakes up, and then they tell Ben to kill the Fantastic Four, and that is the end of the issue. Let me see if I had anything else in my notes. Well, I talk about Reed's eyes on the first page are a classic example of god-awful Coletta. They don't match, and they're both scratched in. It's just awful. I complain a lot about the awkward plotting, 
I, uh, once again, we have them going like, I, you know, them making fun of him for the fact he used to be called Facebook Pete, which is a going to, that never ends. You know, like sometimes you try to change your nickname in middle school and you're like, oh, people will forget my old nickname now that I've changed it. And they never stop calling you by that. Well, same thing happens for Facebook Pete. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> At one point. So they turned Ben Evil by putting him in the id machine. I realize we're already running late on this episode, but you remember my story about id in school where around when I was in, I think it was third grade, they brought in the room mothers to have the Valentine's Day party, which is just, you know, at the last half hour of the day, they have right. mothers come in with real cupcakes for everybody. And, and then they said, all right, everyone, here's going to be what we're going to do to celebrate this day. We're going to write the word St. Valentine's Day up on the board, and we want you to take a piece of paper and make it as many words as you can out of the letters in St. Valentine's Day, and we'll give a special cupcake to the person who comes up with the most words. Well, I always had a very large vocabulary, and I easily won the contest. I had a bunch of words on my page, and then they're like, but then the room mother was like, wait just a second, let me read through your words to make sure you weren't making up these words, because you came up with a lot of words, and then she reads through them, and she's like, oh, you were making up words. You've got the word id. And, <laughs> and, uh, and she's like, you're just making up words. You you don't win. You don't get the cupcake. And I'm like, no, that's a word. And I think I got it from an issue of Micronauts, but um, it shows up a lot in comics, the id. And yeah. she's like, oh, really? It's a word. What does it mean? And I'm like, well, it's kind of hard to describe. It's sort of like part of your mind. It's sort of part of your personality. It's, uh, it's, and so I'm trying to define the word id for this room mother. And I had this, it was sort of a turning point in my life because I sort of had this realization. I'm smarter than some adults now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, or at least I've got a bigger vocabulary than some adults now and, uh, did not help with my lifelong arrogance. And uh, my my <laughs> lifelong arrogance took a made a key escalation on that day. So uh, I yeah. had to hear my notes to tell the id story. Okay. Um, no, I don't remember that story at all. I like how when the thing turns evil, he's always smoking a cigar. It's smoking an evil cigar. And I think it's interesting on this issue. There was always an indication that Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch would turn out to be good, that they were sort of torn about being part of this evil group. And there was a little bit of an indication with Hawkeye that he was sort of torn about helping Natasha. There is not the slightest indication that Medusa is about to become a good guy in a couple of issues. No. And will be a good guy from now on and will eventually become a member of the Fantastic Four. She seems pretty wicked in these issues. She does. And they never really do anything. It's just she shows up one day and it's like, oh, yeah, she's a member of the Inhumans and she's queen of the Inhumans and the Inhumans are good. Okay, sure. We're going on from there. And it's not like, wait, what? I think they eventually went back and came up with some explanation for what was going on. Yeah, I uh, think that air pollution had driven the Inhumans sort of insane or something. And that was the explanation eventually that when they were first exposed to human air pollution or something. But uh, pretty silly. But they have lots of fun with Medusa's hair. At one point, uh, she's playing poker with some of the, or cards of some sort with the rest of the Frightful Four, and she's holding her cards with her hair. At one point, she turns her hair into a giant fan to blow uh, Sandman's sand around. Uh, they, they just really have a lot of fun with this, which is one of the reasons why you knew when you started watching that Inhumans TV show, when they shaved her hair off in the second episode. It's like, Oh, this is going to be bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I gotta save some money. <laughs> 
there are a couple of panels as well where Medusa is looking at the captive Reed Richards and saying to herself, the thing, Sue Storm, and that juvenile torch mean nothing to me. But Reed Richards, he seems almost too handsome to harm. And he's then, uh, and yet none of us are safe while any of them live. I must not become weak and feminine at a time like this. <laughs> like, uh, you know, uh, and once again, yeah, no, she's going to be a queen of a uh, of, of a nation soon. And very devoted to her husband. I guess she's not married to yet, but her consort for life, uh, she's going to seem very devoted to it five issues from now. Yes. It's a good issue. The Frightful Four are pretty good villains. I always love it when villains fight amongst themselves. I loved it when the Brotherhood Real Mutants used to fight among themselves. I like watching these guys fighting amongst themselves. Kirby and Leah always have a fun time doing that. And I think it's a perfectly fine issue. I think it's atrociously inked by Vince Coletta, but it's, uh, we're about to get a much better anchor soon, and I can make it through these Coletta issues, and this is a perfectly fine storyline. And like I said, the broad strokes of the storyline are fine. The actual plotting to get people from A to B is atrocious. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Character-wise, it's a great issue. Uh, Action-wise, it's a great issue. But plot-wise, it's really contrived. Yes, entirely yes. contrived. All right. So let's move on to Journey into Mystery with the Mighty Thor, issue 119, August 1965. Once again, Marvel Pop Art Productions. The cover is a series of different panels that aren't telling a story so much as just giving us a sampling of what we're going to see inside. And I find it a quite nice cover. Yeah. Credits. Who but Stan Lee could have written this tale? Who but Jack Kirby could have drawn it? Who but Vince Coletta could have inked it? Who but Artie Simek could be called Artie Simek? So uh, we yeah. had we had last left off. Thor was in a mortal battle with the Destroyer. So that is still going on here. And at one point, right as the Destroyer is about to destroy Thor, he suddenly turns intangible somehow. And he's not sure what's going on. But uh, apparently uh, Loki, who is currently imprisoned in Asgard because no one trusts him, uh, was using some of his magic to protect Thor there because he determined that after a while, oops, I overshot the mark with what I'm doing with Thor here and he might get killed. And if he gets killed, that is not going to turn out well for me. So Loki then recovers from his stupor and uh, sends out a mental wave to the Norn Queen, who you said who you said eventually gets a a name, but we haven't uh, we haven't gotten that yet. We see many of the destroyers' awesome and varied powers here. He's shooting flame. He's super strong. All sorts of other stuff. On the bottom of page five, there is a panel that I can't really figure out what's going on. It's a cool looking panel. But um, it's at set at like a Batman TV show angle. So like 45 degrees. And I cannot tell whether Thor is pushing against a wall to kick that thing down or whether he is bracing himself against the ceiling to break something there. (laughs) One way or the other, he's um, using his strength to try to bury the destroyer in rubble. And he succeeds in burying the destroyer in rubble, but... Of course, the Destroyer is not destroyed by this. Uh, and I just love those two giant panels on page six with all yeah. of that uh, all of that stuff. It just feels very monumental. Thor is able to find, you know, a sewer, basically, some kind of drainage pipe, and come out in the room where the human, the hunter, who is uh, the brain currently for the Destroyer, is. Thor then holds his body as essentially a human shield against the destroyer and the destroyer is unsure what's going to happen to him if his human body is 
killed. This is like a uh, standoff here. And I will say that on the bottom of page seven, uh, second to last panel, that really is an example of Vince Coletta looking like he just had a ballpoint pen and that's it. Um, And then later came in with like maybe a brush and did just a couple of thicker strokes here and there and uh, spotted one or two blacks. But really all of those lines, I mean, it also kind of looks like a kid tracing this stuff with like a felt tip pen or something like that um oh yeah which is, uh, i think that, i think most 10 year olds could do a better job than Vince Coletta. Uh, that that's coletta at his worst as i've said i'm not i don't i don't have quite as much of a hate on for coletta as you and as many people do but um that is definitely an, an example of i was gonna say peak coletta badness but you could also just say <laughs> trough coletta i guess So uh, the Norn Queen is having a FaceTime call, basically, with Loki in his prison room. She agrees to help him here. Powers of darkness from the sea and the land come forth, serve me. Heed your queen's command. So uh, she is then able to wake Odin from the Odin sleep. Seems like there's no consequence to that. You would think that they could have just done it anyway. But he immediately awakens this. Thor! Warriors of the realm, stand aside. I have heard a message in a dream. The God of Thunder is in danger. Woe to any who may be responsible for such dire tidings. He he is still wearing his footy peaches and just throws on a tunic over the footy peaches. No, I guess he was already wearing the tunic over the footy peaches. So he's still just basically wearing his footy peaches. And that's a fantastic panel, though, of Odin proceeding from his chambers with all of the... uh, soldiers um, kneeling before him and such. So uh, Odin uses some kind of little hologram tank to go see what's going on. He sees the situation. Meanwhile, though, Thor has already gotten things under control and says, you know, okay, Odin, no, you know, father, I guess. Thank you, but I've got this and I'm going to show you I can do this on my own. And indeed he does. His whole human shield thing works and he's able to get the uh, hunter back out of the destroyer body. So then the hunter, it looks like, is trying to escape and get right back into the destroyer. But then some kind of destruction happens. The temple is demolished. and uh, But Thor still rescues the guy because Thor is a hero. And we see, once again, a fantastic image, a full page splash on page 12 of uh, the the temple, which we saw in the previous issue, crumbling, just being destroyed, exploding, whatever you would say. So just a really, really nice look. Thor then leaves the guy again on page 13, second to last panel, some more stuff with the Coletta eyes that you're talking about, you know, just not much character to the line work. Oh yeah, no life. No life in the eyes. This is one thing that Coletta can do sometimes is you'll see all these scratchy lines that look like they were all done with, you know, like I said, a felt tip pen or something like that. And then he adds a couple of brush strokes that are way too thick. So (laughs) the holding lines for his hair there in comparison to the other lines is just like, you got to marry those somehow. So Odin's proud of his son, finds out that Loki was a part of this. Loki is trying to prove that he was trying to fix things once he had already gotten them started. But he is essentially temporarily at least banished. Oh, no, he's not banished. He is bound in servitude to Ularic, my royal warlock. And Stanley then explains what a warlock is. Loki is very, very angry about this, but he's heading off and he's scheming about how he will get his revenge. Thor sends off the hunter. He then finds the. Did he just find the Norn stones or. No, no, he. Right. He just decides, oh, I'll use the Norn stones to get back to New York. Um, We then see. uh, I don't think he's going to New York. He's going to someplace in America where there's a forge. 
because his oh, hair is right. broken in half. Right, and so he goes he, he goes to Pittsburgh. So. We're going to get that great photo collage of him in a steel mill in Pittsburgh in the next issue. Yeah. Right. But meanwhile, the reason I was saying New York is how long has he been away from his medical practice? A long time. So this is <laughs> this is what the Thor comic will become, which is endless epic storylines fighting against Norse threats of various kinds that will go on for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten issues. And then there will just rarely, we will rarely see Don Blake, we will rarely see Thor back in New York. And this is why he has to leave the Avengers. But keep in mind, Thor has never quit the Avengers. Thor right. has just been wrapped up in this storyline for so long that the Avengers were just like, all right, I guess you quit an absentia, Thor. And indeed he did, because he has <laughs> not, uh, one day he will return home and find out that, oh, uh, the Avengers moved on without me a long time ago. But so far, that has still not happened. The Avengers certainly talk about as if Thor has long gone. But yeah. as, as far as anybody knows, he's still a member. I think this is an excellent Thor story. I think that the Destroyer is an excellent villain. It is fun to have all of this machinations going on to save Thor. And then Thor's like, nope, I'll save myself. And impressing his father and finally wrapping up the whole uh, trial of the gods. Um, and then sending Thor up on a new storyline to get his hammer fixed. I think this is an excellent issue of Thor. Yeah, and sending Loki off into servitude for uh, for at least a time. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the art in this is fantastic, you know, with the exceptions of the inking, as we've been talking about here. But the Kirby art is really fantastic, just action-packed. You don't have to worry about any of the odd plotting gymnastics like we had to do in the Fantastic Four issue. I'm, I'm a fan. So uh, moving on to Tales of Asgard, separate credits here, written with gallantry by Stan Lee, drawn with greatness by Jack Kirby, inked with grandeur by Vince Coletta, and lettered with a straight face by Artie Simak. In the previous story, we saw that Thor and Loki were getting a ship loaded up with soldiers and everything in order to go off, and I forget what there is. Oh, that's right, to find out what was going on with the Oversword cracking. And so they're heading off on some journey to do something about that. And we have just a fantastic splash page uh, at the beginning here of people loading stuff onto the ship. You see they've got horses that they're putting on the ship. People are hoisting bags and, you know, giving orders and blowing horns. And uh, it's just really really fantastic oh yeah thor asked balder about the people who are on the ship so uh we meet the warriors three for the first time here who are not yes. introduced as the warriors three they were introduced as part of this crew that we know has is being infiltrated to some extent by bad guys that loki is recruiting and it really brings us the idea that these are three people who are not to be trusted so hogan the well, grim i don't i would disagree with that i think it's pretty clear that some there are some reprobates in the crew but i think we're supposed to thor says and i see fandral the dashing joining our ranks and Thor has respect, I think, for all three of these people. And I don't think we're supposed to think they're bad guys. In panel two, Balder says, uh, I shall enter their names into the list. I believe they have been recruited by your co-captain, Loki. And then, you know, here they come, Hogan the Grim. And then Fandral the Dashing, he's literally twirling his mustache. I guess you're right. <laughs> I guess maybe we aren't supposed to trust these people. I, I it hadn't occurred to me. I'm just so used to the Warriors 3 being these wonderful heroes. Right. I saw them as arriving like wonderful heroes, but I guess you're right. 
Right. And then uh, then we see Volstag, uh, who I think that uh, uh, Walt Simonson will later refer to him as Volstag the Voluminous. <laughs> but, yes. uh, and he is very... I hear they call him Volstag the Enormous, but yes, he yes. will later be called Volstag the, the Voluminous. And he is, uh, he is obviously very boastful and vainglorious. Uh, but we do have a ref- the first time to a reference to anyone in um, Asgard being married. Ah. Thor thinks, ah, blustering Volstag. Methinks you mostly wish a brief vacation from your wife and 15 offspring. Uh, <laughs> who, who will later become, those 15 offspring will later become characters when the great Walt Simonson is writing the book. And, yes. uh, and he has tons his of his daughter fun. Hildy, but we get to meet all the kids. And he has tons of fun with Volstag in those books. Um, yes. and, and, you know, with that characterization of him being sort of a henpecked husband. So anyway, it just ends with, you know, more foreshadowing of that Ragnarok is on the way. This is fun. I mean, you know, this is not much happens in here, but we get some great characters for the ages introduced here. We get a lot of great art. We have a big fight that breaks out between a bunch of the warriors at one point, and that's fun as well. I think that this story is definitely worth it here. (laughs) Oh, it's great. And, you know, these are three of my favorite characters. The Warriors three are three of my favorite characters. Now, I've always, I always said that, you know, of course, a lot of people did not like Thor, Love, and Thunder. I always said that, Thor Ragnarok was an overrated movie. I think it's a great movie. I like Thor Ragnarok, but people will put it like in the top three of the original Marvel movies. I never did. And my number one knock against Thor Ragnarok was always that it so casually killed off the Warriors 3, especially Fandral and Volstagg, and gave a little bit more of a heroic death to Hogan. But I was like, wait, you can't do that. These are, you know, they had not... They didn't do a great job with those two characters in the first two Thor movies, but I still thought they had potential. Of course, yeah. Volstagg was played by the late Ray Stevenson, who just passed away. But I love these characters. And most importantly, Stanley loves these characters. Yes. And Kirby loves these characters. Now, when people would talk about what did Stan do and what did Stan not do, it was generally accepted that even if you think Stan had a greater contribution to these books, that Tales of Asgard was Kirby's thing and was something that Kirby got all the credit for. Well, Stan would, for the most part, just take it on the chin when people would say, oh, Kirby and Dicko deserve all the credit. And Stan would go like, well, you know, you, you're, it's your right to think that. The one, one of the only times Stan got offended was when it was implied that he had nothing to do with Volsag. And clearly Stan loves scripting Volsag, but Stan was like, no, I created Volsag. Volsag was entirely my creation. And how dare you take away credit for Volsag for me? And certainly, if Stan did not create Volsag, he falls in love with him instantly. And Stan loves Shakespeare. And the most direct lift from Shakespeare, the most direct importing of a Shakespearean character into Marvel Comics is Volsag, who is so clearly based on Falstaff in Henry IV, Part Mm. 1 and 2, and The Merry Wives of Windsor. And he gets to write his own Falstaff comics. And just has the world's most fun with him. Says, have at you, puny scoundrels, stand aside for Volstagg. By my sword, there shall be many a flattened head this day. Says, odd blood, none but mighty Thor could call Volstagg stout. Tis but my muscles that have grown more round. (laughs) And (laughs) he is having the time of his life with this character and will for the next what, how many more years is this book? Is Stan going to write this book? Another six years or so that Stan is going to write this book, mm-hmm. and then everybody will have fun with him from this point on. Especially Walt Simonson, as you yes. know, who does a wonderful job with this character. But so does everybody. Everybody loves this character. 
but really Hogan, Vandral, and Volsag are three great characters. It is so they are first introduced in Tales of Asgard and are only in Tales of Asgard for at least a year, and then eventually graduate up to the main book as we see them in modern day. And uh, this is just a wonderful Tales of Asgard story and a wonderful expansion of Marvel Universe. Three of all-time great Marvel characters introduced in this story. Yeah, uh, and uh, one of the things I remember about that have always stuck in my head about Volstagg in Walt Simonson's run is at one point when they're coming back from the big battle in Midgard and Volstagg is bringing back to Asgard with him a set of non-stick pans. (laughs) They're like, what's going on? He's like, oh, well, this means I won't have to spend as long washing the dishes for my 15 kids. (laughs) Which has has always stuck with me. That's just a fantastic little... uh, comic beat there it says on the letters page have you noticed the change in the trademark which bears on the left hand corner of our cover so many of you frantic fans have objected to calling our marvel max comics that we felt we just had to come up with a better name and so from now on you are no longer reading comic books when you read our little masterpieces instead you're reading a pop art book remember from now on brand x y and z are comic books but when you buy a marvel mag you ask for a marvel pop art book We'll be checking on you, so don't let us down. Okay, so those were the first four books from August 1965. Four good books, as we have noticed for a while. We've been having the four good books weighted to the front, and so every other episode you're getting weaker books. But we're about to do another episode where we have they've canceled two of those books or canceled two of those features and replaced them with new features. So we'll see how that goes. But first, we'll go ahead and say goodbye here. All right, bye. And uh, when you hear us next week, we might actually be in person. Yes. Okay. Bye, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.